the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Do I have a great episode for you coming up. So you probably heard something about this whole college admission scandal, I'm guessing. So what I thought I would do, and I still can't believe I pulled this off, I talked my uh, friend and mentor, Mr. Don Betterton, who is a uh, former college board trustee who also served as a um, a director of uh, on the admissions committee of Princeton. He was director of financial aid. Both of those positions were for 30 years. And I just got all of his thoughts about the whole investigation and scandal. What did not surprise him, what did surprise him, how someone like Rick Singer could have pulled off such a complicated and far-reaching scheme. Just generally speaking, how is it even possible and how easy is it to buy your way into a Princeton or any other school, an elite college like that? Um, How do admissions officers treat legacies and donors, the development list, recruited athletes, other special situations that he ever get offered a bribe, and some predictions about what's going to happen next, and really a whole lot more stuff. This, we went about 45, 50 minutes. Uh, I can't thank Mr. Betterton enough for spending this time. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this wide-ranging interview between me and Mr. Don Betterton. All right, Andy Lockwood here. Welcome to a special edition of the College Planning Edge podcast, which is for parents of college-bound teens who are stressed and uptight and just confused about getting into college, paying for college, and everything that has to do with that. So given the recent events that, unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you've heard about the college scandal involving bribes and lying and photoshopping and wiretapping and FBI investigations. Um, I uh, reached out to a friend and kind of a mentor of, of mine who graciously agreed to um, let me bring him on this podcast, Mr. Don Betterton. Hello, Mr. Betterton. Hi. Hi, Andy. How you doing? All right, I'm I'm so looking forward to this, as I've told you multiple times. Um, so, so Mr. Betterton has been, uh, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, just just for a little bit of background here. Uh, admissions committee member, uh, uh, Princeton for 30 years or so, uh, financial aid director, board of trustees of the college board, soccer coach. Is that true? Am I leaving anything out? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, and not. Well, and, uh, I've been an independent counselor for the last thirteen years. Kind of, you and I doing more or less the same thing. So. Yeah, um, and and most importantly, in my mind, the author of Alma Mater, which I, I try to mention every time I speak to you, because I actually still read that book. You know, oh, maybe good for you. I might come out with a second edition here. I might might give up this college planning stuff and may, maybe turn back to being an author. It's a little easier to do. <laughs> A little less scrutiny, maybe. Okay. So, um, all right. So, so let, let's just get right into this. So, what, what's your what's your take on this whole thing involving uh, Rick Stenger, the the college admissions advisor, who's now under indictment? Yeah, my first take is I'm surprised of how uh, much of a widespread news item it is. That I don't want to start. I guess it was about a week ago, and literally for at least two or three days, um, the newspapers, the uh, the headlines on the TV news. Uh, 
whatever it happened to, to be, discussions among people seem to be centered on this uh, to a great extent at the exclusion of, you know, we've got a few other issues going on in the world. So the fact that it seemed to hit the central nervous system of so many for whatever view they took of it, I really was rather surprised. I think that the Hollywood connection probably kicked it off, but it did sustain itself longer and a more serious uh, way than I thought it would. Now, now, were you surprised, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I had a very similar reaction. Were, were, were you surprised because this is just one of these things that everyone kind of knows happens or, or something else, some other reason? Yeah, I don't know what people thought. I think they kind of uh, had the idea that getting into college was a merit-based thing. But they also realized there were athletes, there was affirmative action programs, there were some other ways to do things. Um, but I guess what this did is kind of, you know, got behind the curtain um, and really showed that in detail how these, what these different areas were, and I guess in particular how they could be manipulated in an unfair way. I think that's what really, the unfairness of it, I think, is what got to people. Sure. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and like you said, there's this sort of hope that it's a meritocracy, but that's just not the way things work. And in, in, in reality, I guess is that is that fair to say? Behind the speaking behind the curtain in, in the uh, in the admissions committee. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's been well known. And there's spots for athletes. There is a what's what we call a, a development list. There's a list that goes up with either past donors or potential donors. It goes off. There's um, obviously the the SAT is very important. The higher the SAT, the better the chance of admissions. Uh, and there's things like that. So I think maybe, the, uh, I don't know, it's almost like a conspiracy theory. Those, those people always thought there was more going on than they thought. Now, aha, it really is like that. These, these colleges aren't as sanctimonious and straight as, as they thought. So maybe there's just kind of a gotcha aspect to it as well. I, I don't know what's on their minds, but I just thought that it, there was an awful lot of people who were very interested and had a strong opinion, more than I thought there would be. Yeah, I, I've been saying during my 15 minutes of fame, uh, which has since expired, that um, the only thing shocking to me was that people were actually shocked. <laughs> yeah, right, good. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. So so, so tell me about, um, if, if, if you can, um, h- how much does it really matter or what does it take to, you know, buy your way into an exclusive school? Like, does that, you know, does that actually happen? Is there a certain dollar amount? Are there cer- is there a certain building that you have to put up? Like, what's what, what's the, the the stuff going on behind that? Yeah, I, I think the general accepted way is colleges need need money to operate all the things they do. By the way, including financial aid programs that gives the money back to the poor students. Let's not forget that there's a, a big commitment for poor, disadvantaged students. While we're looking at this rich end of things, there's also a very strong commitment on on a poor yes. end of things. Uh, and there's a procedure. There's what's called either the development or the advancement office at a university. Then they raise money from alums, from corporations, from foundations, whatever it happens to be. And particularly when dealing with alums or the friends of the university, um, they hear somewhere along the way that possibly the child's coming along will be an applicant. And there's this kind of discussion that takes place between the development rep and the, the parents. And, and they talk a little bit back and forth. Now, the easiest thing is if parents have given a good deal of money for a long period of time, then that student almost automatically goes on a development list and will eventually be forward to admissions. Uh, on the other hand, there's money that has not been given, and is there, there's no, nothing as formal as a pledge or not, but there's an indication that this student, uh, the family will be generous if the student is admitted. 
So there's just this kind of what principally called a tag. There's an athletic tag, and let's say there's a minority tag, there's a legacy tag, whatever it to be. It's various categories that get a little extra bonus in admissions, and one of it is the development group, and they send a list to the admissions office, much like the coach would, much like the, uh, the music professor would, to look for musicians or whatever. So there's all these different uh, groups around the university looking for particular uh, people that they support, We'll try at least admissions. Please take an extra look beyond whatever the SAT, GPA, whatever it is. We'd like to have this student for whatever reason on our campus. And there's 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 a good deal of that. Just not to digress too much, but generally when you talk about uh, competitive colleges, there are three levels of admissions. One would be the very best kids. There's no question they they admit them. Then the next level is say at Princeton what we call tags. People who get a bonus, special consideration for whatever reason. And, and, and they take that, that group. That's the second level. And the third level would be the, all those other who are left over that aren't extremely talented all the way around at the top academically or otherwise, who do not have any of this tag attached to them. And that's the group that's you know, you know, more or less your, your regular, smart, bright kids. And what makes college so competitive, I know I'm digressing a bit here, is oftentimes when your pool is so large and your admit rate is so small, once you've taken the very best and you've taken all those tag kids, there's really not many spots left over for the, you know, the really good, solid kid that seems like he should be admitted, but there's simply no room for him. So that's digressing a little bit, but that's kind of the way it works. Yeah, none of that is a digression because <laughs> it's just so interesting. I'm furiously scribbling notes here. Um, I, I, re- I remember I read a book once by a former admissions officer, I believe at Duke University, who estimated that anywhere from two-thirds up to 80% of the slots at any given competitive college are reserved for these tags or these special categories. Does that sound or feel right to you? That's, that's, I think that's quite high. Um, it, it, you know, it depends how he counts that, but I, I would... If you say engineers, for example, might be a group or artists or whatever. So I don't think they, it's a categorization, but I don't think they get a particular big admissions break. But I think the, the, the two big ones I, I, I think would, would, would be, well, the athletes, I think, in most cases are, are probably the, the, the largest group, okay? Depending upon the school, legacies probably come next, but publics for, for the most part, I read somewhere that only 6% of publics pay attention to legacies, which is a mom or dad graduated from that school. Okay, Then it depends how you look at the affirmative action categories. I think you can call out a tag. So I, I think depending upon a commitment to minorities and disadvantaged and uh, overcoming obstacles and first-generation college and all that kind of thing, that's probably the largest group if you want to call out a tag. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I say after that, depending upon the number of athletic teams, probably athlete, athletes come next. And then I would say legacies probably after that. And then miscellaneous categories, including development cases. Okay. so But I would say all of them probably don't add up to more than 30 or maybe 40%. I, did you say up to 80%? Is, is that the yeah. number you quoted? It, it was right. It was from this book. I think the author was named Rachel Tor, T O O R, and she said she estimated two thirds, and some people think as high as eighty percent. Well, she would have to include a lot of categories that I wouldn't include. She probably include engineers, maybe geographic diversity, maybe international students. So she's yes. probably doing a lot of other categories beyond the ones I would list. 
Yes, I think she did include international and other sort of special uh, categories that met institutional goals above and beyond just pure academic considerations, you know, grades and SAT and ACT. Yeah, but see, in those cases, some of those students do not need a break at all. They're, they're, they right. tend to be very strong anyway. International students are a very strong group, so it's not as if you would reach deep into that pool like you might for a development case or an athlete. So I, I would classify those differently. Okay. So, so circling back to the um, the donor and the development cases, you, you made a very interesting point, um, which I, I just read this morning, an article in the Wall Street Journal that was sort of a, a point-counterpoint on, you know, should college be a pure meritocracy versus, you know, this is the way it works. And it's, and the point that um, the, the second argument was uh, making was, had to do with what you just said about the financial aid is that a lot of the money that gets um, donated from the development uh, types of cases goes toward funding financial aid for low-income families. I think it was 49% uh, was what was quoted by, I think it's, it's, uh, the guy was on the National Association of um, Financial Aid Administrators. I think he was the president of that. So I find that very interesting. You, so do you agree that a lot, a lot of that money from the development cases goes toward financial aid? Do you, do you think that's a fair estimate? Oh, yeah, I very much agree with that. I think that's by far the most common reason that alums, independent or dependent of where the children are in high school, give money for. It's very, very, very popular to, to uh, the, the money that a lot of it is kind of unrestricted. So most of the unrestricted money goes right back into financial aid. And then for restricted money, at least at Princeton, the most commonly was to establish a scholarship, endow a scholarship, and it just continues on over time. And the income from that each year gives individual student scholarships. And then I think in addition to that, you might get some grants to academic departments for programs and every now and then a building or something like that. But I, I certainly agree that financial aid would be the, the, most, the, much, the highest percent of where the money goes that's given to the university. So, so when you say restricted, just to clarify, that means that the donor says, I'm, I'm giving you this money, but it's, I need you to use it for X, Y, and Z. These are the restrictions? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's what's called general funds. You just give it to the university, no strings attached. Normally, what's called annual giving, the the money that alums give each year is un unrestricted. And when they when they give their donation, they can check. I like it to go to student aid. I like it to go here or there. But for the most part, universities can use it any way they want. Then some of these other cases, like one of these development cases, they may be talking about a building or a residential college. And then they're looking for money for specifically for that purpose. And normally the name of the donor then is attached to that gift. You know, the, the residential college is called the whatever it is that Princeton, we've got the, Whit, the Whitman Residential College, which was from Meg Whitman, who used to be eBay, and then Hewlett Packard and whatever. Or it may be a program in a department. Uh, somebody's uh, name study for Chinese history or something like that. Yeah, so they can have name gifts, and usually it's attached to a restriction, or you can have just what's called general funds can be used for anything. In that case, it's mostly for student aid. Okay, and I want to circle back to another um, comment you made when you were describing the whole the whole process of admission. So, so the the people who are on this um, donor the development list, it's not like it didn't sound like from your description that they're just rubber stamped and admitted to the university. Is that fair to say? No, no, it's very similar to the athletic list. Um, I, I kind of dealt in both areas, and typically, let's say, a list goes up of 10 soccer players or 10 development cases, okay? And then what happens is the, the list is ordered in a way that either the coach or the development officer would like to see the students submitted. 
However, the admissions office makes the final decision. So in the case of a soccer list, the, the number one guy may be turned down and the number two one be taken because the, the SAT is, is stronger or the GPA is stronger. So the, the list is there, but the admissions office has the, the right, the priority, the responsibility to take in the order that's best for the university as a whole. And the same thing happens with development. They may turn down that the one who has the chance to give the, the largest gift and take number four or five, the, the, the gifts may be more modest, but the student is simply better. They'd rather have that student there. So admissions always has the final say, which kind of gets back to this guy and the guarantee. I don't know how he can completely guarantee anything. He probably has a pretty good idea, maybe at the 90% level, whether this will go through. But still, admissions people have the authority and the right to make the final decision, no matter what list they're on, no matter what the numbers are involved. Yeah, I definitely want to get to that too. But I want to ask you about the the likelihood or the I don't know the the um, duty of a of an admissions person or whoever's at the next level after the coach. Like in the, in this case with Singer, he would pay off a coach allegedly, who would then you know put a kid on the the uh, you know the tennis team list, even though the guy hadn't played tennis since ninth grade, um, and say this is one of the people that we want. Is is there any duty of oversight, or do you, or at least currently, and do you think this is going to change if there isn't really a duty of oversight for the you know the liaison you know to the admissions department to say, well, you know, wait a minute, how come this kid hasn't played on a team since ninth grade? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, well, now the athletic one. Well, they had to to pay off the coaches basically because uh, if they just kind of just jury rigged the, the the profile. Uh, whoever it is, uh, whatever the athlete story is that on all-star teams, they did this, they did that, then the, the coach is going to interview the student, knows the coach's references, so the coach would soon find out this is a fake athlete. So that's why they had to, at the various schools, actually give the money to the coaches. So then the coach presents the kid, but it looks like Singer and his group made the credentials strong enough so when the coach finally put this kid number one or number two, whatever, on the list, they really knew that a student with those credentials in this place on my list is going to be admitted. So once again, I know how it's 100 percent, but it probably gets to be, to be pr- pretty high. Uh, so um, I don't know well, whether that answer, a- answers your question or not. Um, yeah, I'll take you've got, you've got to really get to the well. coaches for, for them to support this thing and to to put them right up there, and maybe even verbally they stop by and see the. Well, what usually happens in the athletic department is that all the coaches' lists go through an athletic department, usually assistant associate director who's the admission liaison, and the admissions has an athletic person. So those are the two who talk about these lists. How strong are they? What teams need what? Which students are we going to admit? So those are the two key people involved, the, the athletic department liaison and the admissions liaison. So in the case of, I think it was USC, they had paid that athletic department liaison a considerable amount of money to make this thing go. So in that case, either the coaches or that individual were, were definitely involved for, to make this thing happen. Just to present the athletes, even fake or whatever, uh, would, would not work without some in, in, inside uh, support. So, so let's, the uh, the Yale soccer coach allegations, where he took four hundred fifty thousand dollars or something, or any actually any of these schools, what isn't there a a, a red flag that um, if a kid gets presented and then you know drops or or never plays a game or never shows up for practice, is is that enough of a red flag 
uh, assuming it happened more than once for whoever's supposed to be, you know, su- uh, I guess supervising the stuff. Maybe it's the athletic director. Maybe yeah, no, the admissions up. wouldn't notice that. I mean, they they admit the the tennis player and they get on with the next year's class and get busy. Okay. They don't know whether that tennis player ever shows up for the team or plays for a year and drops out. They would not know that. I don't know if any of these things were any students were scholarship athletes. I'm, I'm not sure any of them were. Uh, in, in that case, um, you know, if they've got a scholarship uh, and they tend to drop out, maybe the word gets known because it's a more major sport or whatever. But, no, I don't think admissions would track at all whether these students stay with their sport or even go out of, uh, initially. I don't think they'd know that. Okay. Um, in terms of scholarships, the, I think the, the sailing coach at Stanford offered a books, you know, like a $1,500, I guess, books scholarship to one of his recruits. Yeah. I don't think there's any other scholarships involved besides $1,000. Yeah, 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 I don't know. I, I, probably not relevant. Certainly, I don't even know whether he has full scholarships or not. Maybe that, maybe he only has book scholarships. I'm not sure how that would work. It's not a major sport, so I wouldn't assume he has much in the way of money. So maybe that's what he has for everybody. I didn't even know it was an NCAA sport. I figured it was a club. <laughs> I don't think it is. I don't, I, I don't think it is an NCAA sport. It's probably a... There's probably maybe it's maybe it's like equestrian or some something like that where it comes under some other organization. Yeah, could very yeah. well be. Yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> when when I was uh, on on one of these uh, news news programs, they made the joke that I was going to um, start up a Quidditch recruiting scam uh, scheme. <laughs> and, and yeah, all, right. All three yeah. Frisbee. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the the other thing I I don't I, I'll let you ask more questions, but the thing that I wonder is what the transcript looked like and the teacher's recommendations and all that. I haven't heard at all about that. I assume that if there was anything like that, the the, the high school counselor would have blown the whistle earlier. Say, I really haven't done anything for this student, and and I didn't see that application go in, or the, the transcript wasn't strong. So I, 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 I'm kind of curious whether in these cases, I haven't read about it, the transcript and the recommendation, everything else that we haven't talked about was strong enough to be admitted. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about that, whether they actually arranged for transcript as well or whether they just assumed the student was strong enough and the athletic tag or raising the SATs was enough. I, I don't know. I've always had that question. I haven't had, seen anything about it written. I know occasionally there was, I think, a guidance counselor wondered why the student got in here or there, but to whoever the guy's organization was had a, had a way of calming things down. So, Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. So, yeah, I, I think that, that can't be so easy to do because, you know, most of these counselors use Naviance and everything sort right, of uploaded exactly. electronically yeah. in the Common app, right? And certainly yeah. if, if Singer's group, did this, then somewhere along the account say, well, how did you get in? I don't think I filled out the teacher's, you know, the school report or sent a transcript. So I guess they relied on the on the legitimate transcript and teacher's recs. I would expect that would have kicked a couple of kids out. That's why the 100% guarantee, I, I just question how that would be possible. And in the Yale case, the Ivies have a an academic index that they use where it's SATs and GPA and a bunch of other things. And that student, no matter what, uh, would have to get over that level. So even if there might have been extra push, that if the student did get into Yale through this, uh, he or she had to be pretty, well, in this case, women's soccer, she had to really be pretty good to start with. Uh, so the main thing, I guess, was getting on the list for that little extra advantage that being on the list uh, would, would do. 
Yeah, I guess if they well, if they had high scores, I think that was probably one of the driving forces between having the you know the fourteen forty or whatever the magic number was in each case that the tutor who was paid off had to hit to take the test on behalf of the recruited athlete in order to uh, adhere to that academic index to not yeah, throw that away. So yeah, if he really was that sophisticated and knew what the academic index numbers were and made sure that SAT was high enough to get over that threshold, uh, that would do it, that you're right. If, uh, that maybe he does, maybe he knows what the formula is and maybe made sure that the student met the, the standards. That could be. So, so, okay, let's segue into that. I was actually talking to um, a client of mine who, <clears throat> whose daughter was tutored legitimately by that tutor who is, who is now going to jail, apparently. <laughs> uh, and um, my, my understanding of how he, he became susceptible uh, was because he was being paid like $65 an hour, even though he was a Harvard grad and, and he really needed money. He was having a baby and, and all this. Um, but my, I guess my question to you is, how, how easy is it, for you know, for this to happen through the you know through the College Board through the proctoring, um, it seemed like they made a bunch of um, changes recently in the last couple of years in terms of requiring picture IDs, but somehow Singer was still able to find special proctors. Like, how, how does that happen? Yeah, that was interesting. Once again, this guy found the, the let's say the weak spots or the holes in the system because. If, this, if these kids would have just sat in a regular test-taking um, and for whatever reason they had a way of cheating in there, copying the, from the person next to them or whatever, the college board has very sophisticated algorithms to catch what was called normal cheating. Uh, and, and they would cancel the score and ask the kid to take it again or whatever. So he really would, was clever in setting up a special center Looks like there was one proctor there. Um, it was for uh, learn, uh, whatever accommodation kids, right? With some kind of learning difference, and apparently he paid off the proctor at that center. And it could have been these kids only went there. That's it was solely for the purpose of, of his kids, one or two or three at a time. I don't know. Um, and so it was then easy. He somehow he had this other person take the test, or when the tests were handed in, it changed the answers or something. So that kind of stayed almost outside all the college board checking systems. Uh, I haven't read much about ACT, but I assume they do things the same the same way. So that was a, a really way to get around a very sophisticated way the college board has to to, to uh, 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 catch what I would call normal cheaters. <laughs> uh, and, it, and, it, and that was an elaborate setup, as you know. At first, the kids had to get extra time, so they, weren't, they didn't take it at the regular test center, and then he, where the school was, then not even take it at the special time accommodation at their school. There's usually all you know, 100 kids in a room taking the test regular. Then there's two or three kids with some type of accommodation taken in another room or another day or even on two days. So he got that that, that part of the college board thing sent off to another place where he paid the proctor, and that's where all this thing took place. Um, so, once again, it's a little bit like what he says the side door. He avoided the development where it was a lot of money and no guarantee, and, and he moved that away to another one. And he also took the SAT thing where they were liable to be caught and moved that to another venue. Um, so, uh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why I'm chuckling over it, but. It, it, uh, very, very clever, and of course, you're so clever. He probably thought he would be caught, but uh, that part didn't work. It's so elaborate, and uh, you know, I told you offline that I, I had met him. I, you know, back in 2009, before these alleged 
you know, things started to happen. Who knows if that's true or not? Uh, I, I just thought he was a. You know, he told me he actually told me that he specialized specialized in using the side door, which he explained to me at the time meant you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars, not you know not multi millions of dollars. But we never really talked about any of these elaborate schemes. So that that kind of that that impressed me, and it, it kind of blew me away. Um, what, so so. Just, just let me segue into something that um, is not just purely a Rick Singer thing, but when, when you talked, when you mentioned accommodations, that was another one of these things where uh, there was a lot of moral outrage you know, for, for people who were gaming the system. Um, I read in, over the weekend, I read an article that I think between 2006 and 2011 or so, the number of people requesting accommodations doubled or something for, uh, yeah. to, the, to the college board. And that's one of these, um, you know, uh, not even a, s- a secret, like the w- worst-kept secrets that, that I see in, uh, in my practice, that there's been a huge uptick in people requesting accommodations and get in, in order to get their kids an and advantage, kids who otherwise show no, no forms of learning differences or disabilities. So wh- what's your take on that? Like how easy is it to get accommodations, and have you noticed the same thing? Yeah, actually, it's pretty hard. Um, that's another thing I have a question about. And I would say for both ACT and SAT, they're very similar rules as to how to do this. And as far as I know, in almost all cases, the student has to already have a combination in high school, which takes going to a psychologist and getting all these kind of evaluations and things. And the high school then approves the extra time in the high school or whatever the different type of accommodation happens to be, use a computer or, or whatever, um, and, and then, then it becomes a relatively easy for the, the ACT or SAT to simply say, okay, you've already been approved, we trust that, send a paperwork where you've got the accommodation in high school, and we'll approve it for the SAT or the ACT. As far as I know, that is a standard procedure almost all the way along. So did he leave this thing so much that he got these kids two or three years ahead of time accommodated in high school so they would then move in and get accommodated for the SAT and ACT. I guess he did. I can't imagine suddenly having them get, get accommodations just, just like that. It's, it's a fairly long, detailed process to do. So he may very well start early made sure they got in school. But then again, I get back to what is the school observing in this? So this student was in, in these accommodation situations in high school do they really, the counselor must have known about it, must have looked at the paperwork. If not, all of a sudden a student gets accommodation. The counselor would wonder why the student's getting extra time and going to another test center. I don't know. I saw some questions kind of behind the scenes, you know, of, of how some of this really happened. But uh, yeah, I don't those, know. Those I, are, just, I just scratched my head a little bit over some of it. Yeah, I was just literally going to say that I'm scratching my head, too. I think that same article, I believe, in the, in the New York Times is written by a psychologist, I think. Um, the College Board approves 85% of the extra time and other uh, accommodations. So it may be hard to do unless you have some kind of very friendly slash on the payroll, you know, psych- psychologist who is, uh, you know, allowing this to, to happen or, or almost rubber stamping it. You know, my, my wife, Pearl, has a, has a friend who, who lives in, a, um, in another state, not New York, whose child um, goes to a private high school, and she said that he takes the test timed 
and there's like four other kids in the room, and everyone else is taking it <laughs> under accommodation. So yeah, I, sometimes I, they even take it over a couple of days. I guess I, I think if somebody did the ACT, they took two of the tests on one day and two on the next day, and uh, yeah. yeah. So I, you know, once again, it's a, it's there for good, legitimate reasons, which is some of these groups are very worried about now. They're going to crack down on it, which well, like a lot of things will hurt the the legitimate kids. So we'll see what happens. But uh, there are definitely, you know, careful procedures in, in place. Uh, and somehow we found a, a way to take advantage of it, even though the kids didn't deserve it. So it's another thing he thought through and was able to, you know, to have, make it happen. But it wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if he hadn't set up the special test center with the proctor that he paid off and with maybe the guy who was uh, the test expert might even been on site changing answers. I'm not sure. So he had to not only know things at the first level, which might not have worked, he had to even go to the next level to make sure he did all the things to to be successful. So he certainly put a lot of time and effort in on this. <laughs> yes. we, we, don't, we don't want to use the word admiration for the guy. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> He, yeah. he, sure, he sure worked hard to understand the system and how to get around it. He paid an awful lot of money to get around it. Right. Just, just imagine if he had stayed legitimate, how, how good yeah, he Yeah, you would think that, right? A guy right. that bright knows so much. He probably just had a regular practice. He could have charged, let's say the going rate nowadays is, you know, five to $10,000. He could have charged 20000 for or maybe a little bit more for the wealthy family, say, I'm not guaranteeing anything, and, you know, send him off to whatever the appropriate school was. and. I think the parents would be satisfied in most cases. I, I, there's this mania, you know, the prestige mania for uh, what I call the card to cow thing. How much more the p- parents will pay to put, you know, Yale in the back of their car instead of Penn State. It, that's the driving force behind this whole thing, you know. Not They don't have to be the wealthiest people in Hollywood or in, in business. It's just that's pervasive in our society. I mean, I see it all the time, and I deal with, you know, more or less regular middle-income families, but that... The value of that prestige is on that end drives what this guy was able to do on the other end, right? So I, I see that too. But then I remember when when the story came out, I was looking at the schools that were involved, and it's not just Yale and Stanford; it's the University of San Diego, which admits fifty percent, and it's yeah, the that, USC. Yeah, that surprised me. I think I mean that that that's a solid school, and Wake Forest is in that category, a little bit stronger. But yeah, it wasn't just Harvard, Yale, Princeton. USC is is kind of up there. I think that maybe it's more of a local prestige for the Hollywood set. But, yeah, the fact that there was some other. University of Texas, Austin, I've had some pretty, I won't call them normal kids, I call average good kids get in UT Austin. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be off the charts good. And Wake Forest is about the same, you know, a good, solid A-minus student, good test scores. I mean, that's what they're looking for. But And the parents paid a lot of money for, for those schools. Is that right? I don't know what the numbers were for each. But, yeah, it wasn't just the, uh, the super elite schools. Yeah, yeah, that that was interesting to me. So, all right, so let, let me let me ask you the juicy stuff. Did so when you were when you were at uh, at Princeton? Did anyone ever solicit you or anyone that you knew to try to you know get get in the side door, or the back door, or anything other than the front door? No, now I was at Princeton. I once again I've had the one case from a Chinese family ask that question um, since I've become an independent counselor. But no, I never had anything like that while I was at Princeton. Uh, I did have some of my admissions colleagues um, occasionally uh, get, get well, with this, they would, they would get the kind of development list that would came down, and sometimes they admitted the kids, and sometimes they didn't. Uh, they, at, that, at that time, whatever it was, they felt that their job was to put together the best class. And I'm not going to mention a name, but it was the son of a very wealthy guy, 
um, and the guy was kind of, you know, the promise was going to be a reasonably sized gift, hopefully, you, you never know. And the, 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 the kid wasn't that bad. He was from Texas. I remember specifically because the guy showed me his folder. Um, and he was okay. He said, well, there's just something about this guy I don't like. I think he's a little spoiled. I think he's this. I think he's that. I'm just not going to admit him. And that probably meant some millions of dollars down the line. But that was, that was his decision, and he just didn't think he'd be a good fit for Princeton. So I'm sure there were many others going on like that that I wasn't, you know, didn't know personally. But uh, that's to say, the admissions people are still the ones that are making these decisions, no matter what the SAT, no matter what, what, the, what the money might be, what the athletic uh, uh, prowess is, whatever. But it looks like this guy made it so he would make sure at the admissions level there was enough there on a positive side and no negative flags that he was pretty sure these kids were getting in. So, uh, uh, they're, they're, one thing I don't—I don't know whether all these kids actually got in the schools that all the publicity is about. I haven't seen much about that. I thought I saw somewhere that the the the, the Stanford um, sailing case that Stanford didn't have a record of the student. I don't know. You may know more about that. Yeah. I, so so he was um, admitted but de- deferred for a year, and oh. then he decided not to go. So the, so then the sailing coach um, contacted Singer and said, "Hey, I have another spot that opened up." Oh, okay. All right. So he was admitted there then, even though he might. Okay. Yeah, but and about, about the Yale and the Yale soccer player, do we know that that girl was admitted? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, so I get I get questions like with the, like the scenario that you just described about the um, the the Chinese um, businessman. So t- t- you told me that story before. So, so, the, so the brother contacted you. So just to tell me what happened. Yeah. Yeah, the, the father was in China, and I don't think he spoke English. So the brother was in the U.S., and it was one of my independent counseling students. And said, and she's kind of okay, but, you know, um, let me move away from that ringing phone. Um, and, and said, you know, the father wants to know what it would take for, and I don't know whether he named a specific school or not, and said, well, what would it take to get her admitted to something? And I said, there's really no way to tie any gift to any admissions decisions. If he has a cause and a, a school he wants to give money to and he wants to fund the Department for Chinese History, whatever, he can go ahead and do that. His daughter can apply there, but I can't say that, that she'll necessarily be admitted there. So that was the way that conversation. We talked for a while, he hung up, and that's the last I heard of it. And, and was he surprised? Because when I have similar conversations, they, they seem not to really believe me. Um, yeah, I think he might have been surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he, he, him being here in America, he probably was not as surprised as the father was. The father probably felt he could do this, okay? But, yeah, he kept asking the question again and again in different ways. So, yeah, I think to some extent he was surprised. You know, there, uh, in, the, in the recent past, I've seen stories, uh, one or two stories, about um, Asian-American um, consultants who took seven-figure fees and guaranteed uh, their, the, the client's admission into Harvard, and then it didn't happen, and they were sued. So yeah, that I, came out a couple of years ago, right? Was it like a couple million dollars, something like that? I yeah, can't remember. Yeah, that was when I first raised my rates. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. No, not, not at all. <laughs> uh, all right, so, so, all right. Moving right along. So, so what about? Um, so, I think another thing that is almost as rampant and widespread as um, the untimed testing and combinations and other combinations is um, the sort of 
um, uh, you've always, one of my favorite quotes that, that I ever heard you say was, there's a difference between polish and fiction. And I'm, I'm talking about the college activity section or the resume. I, I know, I, I keep hearing about a lot of kids, and I've been, and I've been approached also, um, who just make up stuff. They'll say, oh, my, uh, my dad's friend said that I could put down that, you know, I worked for him for, you know, over, over the summer, should I do that? And my response is always, first of all, it's not going to get you into college or not, so why even have this discussion? Second of all, you know, that's lying. You know, there's, <laughs> you, you don't need to do that. It's, it's, it's really bad. But it's just sort of the, the assumption behind the question is that everyone is doing it, so should I just do this and this is what it takes? So do you, have you encountered that? Do you have any comments on that? Um, in, in a way, I have. I mean, obviously, I look at all this stuff. I always go over the kids' common app before it goes in, and I've talked to them for a year or so, so I know it's pretty much legitimate. So I guess I don't get any sense of, well, let me jazz this up a little bit. I guess they've been pretty straight. Um, what I get from my Chinese clients is a little bit different, is they're a, a little astonished that w- that whatever you put on there, admissions people say is going to be true. Uh, it's, it's fundamentally an honor system, because when I'm over there in China, they normally come in with a student and they bring a copy of every certificate and award and whatever, and they think that all those things are going to have to be made copies of and sent in with the admissions application. And when I say no, you just write down what you've done, and that's going to be it. They're really rather surprised. So mm-hmm. that that's that group. So I think because of that. The Chinese students I don't see, I think there's probably a lot of maneuvering going on, um, and I certainly hear enough stories about it. There's a, the SAT gambits where there's pretty, you know, in some cases, pretty widespread cheating on the SAT over there, and then I'm sure it goes into um, uh, other people writing teachers' recommendations. Some of the teachers don't, don't, don't speak very good English, so the agency over there writes the recommendations. I've even heard some transcripts. Uh, the transcripts aren't quite as readily available as they are over here, so they'll make up trans. So I, I think because it is an honor system, it's much easier than what this guy uh, Singer did. It's really relatively easy to make up this basically this fake application, okay, in the way of write the essay, do the teacher's recs, come up with a transcript, and basically find a way maybe to get those SAT scores up by an early copy of the exam, which sometimes shows up. Or I've had students who, do you want me to keep going on? I know I've talked too much yes. about it. Yeah. But in China, one of the things they did is they, all, all the SAT is given in Hong Kong. Uh, and, they, and some of these agencies over there, which is what they call a college consultant, say big business agencies is what they're called, uh, they send students to Australia to take the SAT, which I think is about four or five hours earlier than Hong Kong. And then they're sending in the answers to the kids before they go in the, the Hong Kong test. So there's some pretty elaborate test uh, uh, cheating schemes, that, and simply getting a, an early copy. Or for a while, College Board was actually repeating earlier tests later on in the international market. So these companies would find out that there was the same test and they would start then teaching in their test prep courses the exact test they were going to be taking. Anyway, the whole point is, because of an honor system, it's really easy to take advantage of for international students in China where they don't have all the kind of same things, and you wouldn't have to do anything nearly as elaborate as this guy Singer did in the U.S., yeah, the, uh, the, and that was also in the news. I think uh, less than a year ago, um, again with, with the elaborate, you know, get, taking the earlier test and getting the answers and and funneling it, you know, to into China and then even to America. I think. 
So, yeah, I see those stories a lot, too. They have nothing to do with Rick's and, and, and yet we get back to the parents' role in this and why they would do this and how much money they spend and why is it so important to them for these students to go to certain colleges. I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, you and I rely on that probably in, in our business because they want to do more than just go through the high school counselors. And it's particularly important in, in China, India, Korea, Japan, or whatever. The U.S. News is their Bible, as you probably know. I don't know if you've dealt with some Chinese students. And they just go down that list school by school, and they think there's a big difference between number three and number 13 and number 33, and it's very, very important to them as to where their schools are on that list. When they, and because of they have that outcome in, uh, in mind, then what they do to get there and to have a chance is basically, you know, uh, I don't know <laughs> what the word is, but uh, that that's their goal, and they'll do almost anything to reach it. For some families, I mean, we're still talking about a relatively small number of kids and parents who do this, but since there's so many applications over there, the, the number is reasonably large of those who, uh, who the admissions people in the U.S. are very careful about looking at some of these applications. Oftentimes they're doing, uh, they're setting up interviews and Skype calls to see whether that person is the, is the same person, and, and they're doing some very elaborate checking. So mm. I, we've seen a kind of a very high level on steroids view of it through the U.S. scandal. But I think overall the numbers are much larger and the problem much deeper in the international market. Very interesting. Okay. So so getting back, just to loop back to the, um, the the resume and the activity sheet. So so if a kid makes up, you know, some sort of, it doesn't have to be a job, it could be an award, uh, being captain of a team, being a founder of a robotics team or, or something like that, and puts that on the, on the, um, on the common application, um, that the guidance counselor is also signing off on, like what what are the implications and uh, how likely are they to get caught? For what, the the the, uh, the counselor just sends in a transcript and usually the, um, the school report and a few other things. The counselor in most cases will not actually see the common app, so they won't. There's no in-school systematic review of what the kid puts on a common app. So it truly, is the honor system. The way they have to watch out is inconsistencies. I mean, they might say they, they do something, uh, and the teacher, I mean, let's say they, they're on a robotics team, and they say that they're the founder, the president, and they won a national competition. And then they end up with the, asking their physics teacher to write a recommendation, and then the recommendation of physics, he's a, he's a contributing member of the robotics team, but doesn't do much or whatever, you know. <laughs> or the same way with English, he's taking the honors English and getting a B, but this is the world's greatest essay or something like that. So I think there are some internal checks when a student does not, you know, is making some shortcuts, we'll call them. But I think for the most part, there's, the chances are they'll probably get away with most of this, put it that way. Okay, that's depressing. Thanks. So, so what about um, what what about uh, guidance counselor recommendations? Like, how many of them are um, actually? I don't want to say negative, but but um, you know, are, are they? They're, they're not all glowing and, and positive. Is that is that fair to say? Is it? Are they are they used um, by every school as an indicator of a kid's ability and character? Do some schools use them more than others? What's your take on those? Yeah, so there's a, there's a school report. So the transcript goes in, and with that is a school report, and they write some things. So the guidance counselor usually writes a paragraph or two um, as part of the school. Now, a lot of those come from what's called brag sheets, 
right. uh, that the, the school sends a, a sheet to the parents, a sheet to the kid, and they actually write what they do. And so the kindness counselor, in, in many cases, takes what the student and parent says and puts that in the school report. Counselor recommendations. Then there's usually two teachers who write. Now, that's independent of that, and now the, it's what the kid does in that class, okay? Now, for the students I'm dealing with, I mean, it's really, you wouldn't ask a teacher to write for you if they don't like you, you've done a really a poor job or whatever. You so would think. There's a lot of great inflation in recommendations. So, I mean, it's probably nothing in the students you and I deal with, probably below very good. That almost becomes the average. And then it's these keywords is is an exceptional outstanding one of the best or whatever so there's a lot of compression there and it really only makes a difference if you see something that's unusual and the one that i have that probably makes a difference that would be one of the few i've seen in my career okay if you see that one in a wreck now you know this kid is special one of the best i've seen in the last two or three years is pretty strong and then after that they all become they read pretty much the same way so you're looking for that extra comparison to really pay much attention otherwise you just zip through it and move on to other things so it's unusual to see something kind of negative because yeah like, I, like you once said, again, you I don't see teacher recommendations but I, I would think it's very rare to see something negative unless the kid makes a mistake and the teacher is kind of out to get him for some reason and just what well, I would say it's very very rare that a, a a, a recommendation. It might be a very mild negative. He could work harder. He doesn't quite imply himself. But to really torpedo the kid, let's say that, I think that's un, un, really rare. And and do the smaller private liberal arts schools take these recommendations into account more than the larger, you know, public and land grant universities? Definitely. Yeah. Everything at the lower at the smaller college level is done more carefully than than at the higher levels. Yeah. That's when they really look at these things. They might even do the old fashioned thing of calling the guidance council and find out more about things, which almost never takes place now at the at the larger universities. Yeah, the the old fashioned way of doing admissions is now pretty much reserved for the, the high quality small colleges. We're getting maybe 5,000 applications. You know, these other schools are getting 30, 40, 50,000 applications, and they're just getting through them in, in, a, in a hurry. There's no question about it. And if you're talking about the big publics like UCAL, what did UCLA have, 100,000 applications? They're doing a lot of computer screening for probably at least half of those. Unless they're flagged for some special characteristic, those students aren't even going to sit and going to look at their activities or their or their um, essays or things like that. And then when they get down to these other levels, a more manageable group, that's when I think they start digging into holistic admissions. Now I'm saying that for looking at it from here. You may know someone who's a reader knows more, but that's the impression I get for the large systems. No, I, that that is accurate as far as I know. We have four former college admissions officers that, that work with us and help our kids, and uh, they've they've told me that repeatedly. Okay, so what what do you think happens next? You know, in, in terms of I don't know, re, uh, schools changing policies, College Board changing policies, regulation, anything. I don't think the much. I don't know quite what can uh, there be. The, the, so let's look at the two things. So there's test cheating and there's accommodations and test cheating goes together. There's the athletic list uh, submission. So the athletes are still going to get a priority. Um, maybe there's someone else that, that looks at these things a little carefully. Maybe there's now going to be a little double check. So someone like the associate AD at USC doesn't have sole responsibility. So there may be a little internal stuff on the athletic part of things to make sure that, that that's carefully done. 
And the testing side, I think, is a very unique, in some ways, clever way of getting around all the other checks they have. So I don't see anything long-lasting there in the way of what the College Board does. As far as the accommodations go, I think for a while there's going to be some talk about cracking down some way on that. But I, I, I don't think I don't see any deep, long, long-lasting changes coming out of this. I, I really well, don't. How about um, donations made for a kid who's applying to that particular college? Do you think that'll continue? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I see there was there's some group that's called for a, a actually a senator representative calling for some kind of takeaway tax deductions if the kids admit it at the same time. <laughs> I don't know how you could possibly enforce anything like that. But then the Kubo, which is a business organization, and another one, the Foundation Think Case, both said no, we we don't want that. So I think that one would die down. I don't know how you could possibly control that through the tax system or anywhere else. So yeah, I'm. Once again, I, I could be wrong, but once again, I don't see any deep, long-lasting effect, but I do see a careful look at all the different aspects of this, and colleges in their own way or the college board will see if they can do maybe in some way to, to cut this out. But the, the guy really did find some uh, a way to get around this. I mean, if you're going to cheat, you're going to cheat. You know, it's hard to, hard to kind of cover people who want to do that at that high level of sophistication and change things in a way that basically would make it harder for just your regular kids, right? Yeah. That, that you don't want to do. You don't want to put anything so restrictive to catch people like this that's going to make hard for the very kids that you want to keep the door open for. So. Right. It's the whole baby out with the bathwater thing. You, 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 don't, you, you don't want to uh, unduly you know, have a chilling effect on the kids who really deserve to get in. Um, uh, yeah. So, all right, final question. So what, what is your advice for, you know, just regular families like we were just talking about or, or any family that's applying to school going forward on any of this stuff? Is it, does anything change? Is it still the same advice? I mean, can you think of anything that you would say differently now? No. No, I, I, I really don't think so. I mean, um, you know, you, you try, as you know, we, we do the best we can with these students. I think, <laughs> I try to think honesty is the best policy. Um, you may not get in that, that super dream school, but you'll probably go to a school that you do very well in, you'll fit in well. And I tell these kids that are so intent on going to the top whatever, top 20, top 30, it's still how you perform at the school you go to, okay? And if you're going to go on in life and you're going to go on in your job, you're much better coming out with your A, a, a average and doing really well, let's say here in New Jersey at, at Rutgers, and getting your job and doing well rather than, let's say, going to a more prestigious school, kind of just muddling through, getting to be, and then I don't think you'll probably do as well down the line as, as you will. So I, I, the, the, the overemphasis on prestige is everything, and my life will be better if I go to this school versus that school. I just spend an awful lot of time trying to talk parents out of that, and I'll continue to do so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my version of that conversation is that there's, there's really no correlation between where you go and how successful you're going to be, no matter how you measure it, including monetarily. There's, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that, that study by Kruger and Dale that, that track kids and their success, you know. There's, yeah, there's... exactly. It's what you do when you get there and then what you do with it when you get out. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah, and, and, in, and in a given year, there's a very large percentage of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera, graduates who are unemployed, you know, for various right. reasons. It's it's no guarantee just because you go to one of these schools. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, that was great. You spent. <laughs> I really, I really uh, appreciate all the time you spent and your your advice and your take on this. Um, do you have any closing bits of wit and wisdom? No, you no, want no. To share? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, appreciate the chance. Uh, 
I don't know whether I'll ever, ever hear this thing again, but we'll see. Hopefully somebody gets a little bit of good advice or input about it, okay? Yeah, I think there's going to be more coming out. I just, uh, I, I don't, know, I just had that feeling that we're sort of scratching the surface somehow. Yeah, I think there's some at the school level that the alarm bells might have gone off earlier. So I'll see whether what happens at that level. So we'll see. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, well. All thanks right. again. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Uh, on behalf of Don Bettiton, Andy Lockwood signing off here for the College Planning Edge. And please, if you like this episode and you like, you know, how we how we cover. Uh, the whole college process, please give us a glowing review on on, uh, on iTunes or, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, and please subscribe. All right, bye-bye. Thanks again. Hi, this is Andy Lockwood. Don't forget to visit our website, lockwoodcollegeprep.com, for some more free, valuable information on how you can multiply your chances of admission to your dream colleges and qualify for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships along the way. Visit LockwoodCollegePrep.com for information on our free upcoming workshops and webinars and to download a copy of our number one best-selling book, How to Pay Wholesale for College. That's LockwoodCollegePrep.com. Bye-bye.